0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 9. In the last episode, I covered the history of Gaza, more frequently, at least in a modern context, referred to as the Gaza Strip. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing the journey through Deuteronomy, with more of the minor, so lesser known places mentioned in the text. And before starting, one thing to consider. Since these are lesser known, there isn't much material both inside and outside of the biblical text about them. So, they go by rather quickly. At least most of them. And with that, let's get started. The next place mentioned in the text is Heshbon, but I covered this town east of the Jordan in Chapter 5, Episode 10. No sense repeating myself which gets me to the first place on the agenda this week, which is Kedemoth. This was a city in the territory allotted to the tribe of Reuben, but the city itself would become a Levitical city, specifically given to the family of Merari. It was near and to the northeast of the city of Dibingad, making it east of the Dead Sea, therefore east of the Jordan River, and in the modern country of Jordan. It was from here, in Deuteronomy 2, that Moses sent messengers to Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, requesting peaceful passage through territory he controlled. The king refused, and a battle ensued, one with the Israelites emerging victorious, and Sihon and all of his army, and civilians for that matter, struck dead. Though, in this reference, it's called the Wilderness of Kedemoth, In this regard, it's generally thought to refer to the unoccupied, or sparsely occupied land around the city, near the Arnon River. Later, in the book of Joshua, Ketamoth is mentioned again, as a Levitical city in Reuben. The city is thought to have been on top of a small hill, a tell in the local language, with a couple of modern small cities proposed as the possible location but no one really knows. If it is indeed one of these small towns, where Iron Age artifacts have been uncovered, then these finds may be from the same era. One such tale is thought to be the remains of a Moabite fortress, also from the same general time period, may be related to King Sihon. Other layers of finds include artifacts from the later Nabataeans, and that's it for Kedamoth. Next is the city of Ar. It's mentioned in the biblical text as being a city in the Moab region. And given the structure of its name, it's commonly thought to be at or near the Arnon River, with at least one modern researcher positing it was situated on an island in the river. If not there, it was at least in the Arnon Valley, likely in the southern part of that valley. This region is known today as the Wadi Mujib, I covered the Arnon River in Chapter 5, Episode 6. While the exact location has been lost to the passage of time, in ancient Israel, it's thought to have been very prominent, especially since it was listed by the prophet Isaiah when he denounced the Moabite Kingdom in the 15th chapter of the book that bears his name. Circling back a few centuries, Numbers 21 records that Ar was a city under the control of King Sihon. At least it was before his annihilation by the sword of Israel. Then the story of R gets less specific. The word itself may be literally translated as meaning city, which of course means it could have been more of a generic place reference. If this is the case, then it helps to explain why most translations don't just refer to it as a place called R, but attempt to make it more specific. In the case of Numbers 21, it's called R of Moab, a phrase similar to what's found in Isaiah 15. If you take this a step further, then other places in the text, like Numbers 22, which names a place Ur-Moab, and Ur is with an I, not an A, this may refer to the same place. Less and less specific. So goes much of ancient history. But this podcast isn't about ancient languages, or literal, or not quite literal translations—at least not directly. I guess the best way to wrap up R is that, at least in this case, it was a largely unknown city in Moab. Moving along, if you can believe it, even less is known about Hahaz. Numbers 21 tells us it was the site where King Sihon was defeated by the Israelites. Like Kedemoth, it was also a Levitical city in the territory allotted to the tribe of Reuben, and also east of the Jordan River. And that's it. Lesser known, indeed. Which gets me to a slightly better known place, Aroer. This city was also east of the Jordan, on the north bank of the Arnon River, placing it due east of the Dead Sea in a territory that up until the Israelites arrived was controlled by the nation-state of Moab. Like all of the places so far in this episode, it too was located in what is the modern country of Jordan. Given its presumed proximity to the Arnon River, it's thought to have been in the valley carved by the river, perhaps on the edge of the valley. Many researchers think its location was at or near the modern city of Erear, which would place it 11 miles, 18 kilometers, upstream from where the river empties into the Dead Sea. Like many of the places in this episode, it too was formerly controlled by the Amorite king Sihon, until Moses and his band of not-quite-so-merry Israelites showed up. It too would end up part of Reuben, on the very far south of their allotment. Arir did merit a mention in Numbers 32, in that case being a city rebuilt by Gad. The rebuilding occurred before it was allotted to Reuben. Later in the Old Testament, the king of Aram Damascus, King Haziel, would defeat King Jehoram of Israel and win territory that included Arir as its southern limit. This story can be found in 2 Kings 10, where we're also told that Arir was on the Arnon River. Later, Jeremiah 48 tells us that the city was at some later point recaptured by Moab. The prophet Isaiah, in the book sharing his name, tells us that the cities of Arir, in the plural, will become forsaken, at least in the King James. Both the New Revised Standard and NIV render it as deserted. Either way, not a desired fate. Finally, in the text there is the 15th chapter of Joshua, where a city named Alda is referred to. This is the only place in the entirety of the Bible that this place is mentioned. Many researchers think that this city, Aldua, is an error made by an ancient scribe, and the correct city, the one that should have been recorded, is Aurora. Who knows? Finally, there is a singular mention in the outside record, found on the Mesha stele, This stone inscription was made around 840 BC by King Mesha of Moab, hence the name. It records that Arrera was a Moabite city. As an aside, the Mesha Stele is presently located in the Louvre Museum in Paris. Last year, I was in Paris on a business trip, and managed to sneak out one afternoon to visit the museum, and not for the art, but for the antiquities, I figured I had spoken so much about artifacts like the Mesha Stele, but had never seen many of them with my own eyes. In my head, this stone tablet was larger than life. I had never considered its actual size. In reality, it's about 3 feet, 1 meter tall, and 2 feet, 60 centimeters wide, much smaller than I imagined. It's shaped like you would think the Ten Commandments were. I resisted the temptation to be underwhelmed by its physical appearance and instead stood awed by how this relatively small artifact had survived nearly 3,000 years, still carrying most of the message the king intended to impart. If you're ever in Paris, visit the Louvre. Just make sure the Antiquities Wing is open that day. Moving along. Next is Gilead a place I've mentioned several times in both chapters 3 and 5 of the podcast, but I've yet to cover in depth. And it's not just a single place, but more likely two different places, and three different people. All of these we know very little about. In the ancient Hebrew language, it's thought to translate to the phrase, Hill of Testimony. Though, a few think it may mean nothing more than Rocky region. The Hill of Testimony translation is, surprisingly, roughly the same translation of the phrase in Aramaic, pointing to a similar source. The place name, at least the one found in Deuteronomy, is for the mountainous region east of the Jordan River, in the present-day country of Jordan. Through this region runs the Yarmouk River. To the south of the river's ravine is Gilead. To the north is Bashan at least in the era of Deuteronomy. In our time, to the south is the country of Jordan, and to the north of the river is Israel. The region known as Gilead is about 60 miles, close to 100 kilometers long, and 20 miles, 32 kilometers wide. It essentially runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. Also to its south were the states of Moab and Amman, more on those two in a second. While you may have never, or at least not frequently, heard of this region, by now you should be familiar with several of its mountains. Mountains such as Pisca, Nebo, Aburum, and Payer. A very historic and frequently mentioned region. Like most of the other places in this episode, it too was controlled by King Sihon. The area north of it was controlled by Og. Of course, they were both defeated by Moses and the Israelites, and after this, Gilead was allotted to the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. But the Exodus wanderings were not the first mentions in the biblical text. That occurred in Genesis 31, when Jacob was fleeing his father-in-law-slash-uncle Laban. Jacob would flee to Gilead, where Laban would eventually catch up with him. The place would also be mentioned in the books of Judges and 1 Chronicles, referring to the same mountainous region. As you've learned by now, kingdoms in that era, well, really throughout history, never have static borders. In the case of Gilead, especially in its south, the kingdoms of Ammon and Moab frequently included parts of Gilead, even after the Israelites settled there. King David, when his son Absalom attempted a coup, King David fled to Gilead. Finally, the prophet Elijah is said to have been from Gilead. Outside of the Bible, King Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria from 745 to 727 B.C., claimed control of a province he called Galazoo, which is thought to be the same as Gilead. And that's the region in the Pentateuch. The other place known by the same name is found in the book of Hosea. This mention may refer to Ramuth gilead or Jabesh-Gilead. And now for the somewhat confusing part. Both Ramuth and Jabesh may have been cities located in the same mountainous region, and the presence of the name Gilead was quite possibly nothing more than the writer pointing out which Ramuth and Jabesh he was referring to. So, even in this case, it was still the same area. Now for the people with the name. First is the grandson of Manasseh and the son of Machir. This would make this Gilead the great-grandson of Joseph. His family quite naturally were known as the Gileadites, a family mentioned only three times in the Old Testament. Another Gilead was the son of Michael and the father of Eurorah as found in 1 Chronicles 5. No other mentions from him, but given his location in the timeline of the text, it's a natural assumption that he may have been named for the prior Gilead. Finally, the third Gilead was the father of Jephthah, as seen in Judges 11. I'll get to Jephthah when I get to that book. For now, just know that he was a judge who lived in the Gilead region, who got caught making a vow he almost immediately regretted his father was likely named after the Gilead more closely related to Joseph. And that's Gilead. The next place in the text of Deuteronomy is the river Jabbok. On modern maps, it's called the Zarkah River. It's the second largest tributary of the lower Jordan River, second only to the Yarmouk River. The first mention in the text was in Genesis. The day before he wrestled with either an angel or God, Jacob, along with his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, crossed the Jabbok. This was while he was traveling to Canaan. Soon afterwards, on the banks of the Jabbok, Jacob would meet up with Esau. It's likely that after wrestling, Jacob and family followed the river to the Jordan and crossed that river where the two converge, as fording at that location is relatively easy to the point that it's thought to be in the same general area that the Israelites would cross the Jordan, while being led by Joshua, marking an end to their forty years of wandering. In this same area are the biblical cities of Zarethan and Adam, both mentioned later in the Old Testament. In the Pentateuch, King Sihon's territory extended from, according to Numbers, from the Arnon River to the Jabbok. But only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified. The river would mark the boundary between the territories of Reuben and Gad from that of the neighboring kingdom of Ammon, for the same reason as King Sihon's border was there. Later, in Judges, the king of Ammon tried to convince Jephthah to give the land in the area back, a request the Israelites denied. A fight ensued, one where Jephthah made the vow I mentioned earlier, and the Israelites won, solidifying their claim to the land. The Jabbok source is a spring near Amman, Jordan, with many other natural springs along the way feeding it. It leads from Amman to the Sukkot Valley, flowing at first north, then turning west. Its total length is only about 65 miles, so just over 100 kilometers but in this distance, it drops nearly 3,500 feet, over 1,000 meters. Because of this, it can flow swiftly, and given the soil is rather loamy in the area, it has managed to cut a deep canyon. Speaking of geology and geography, and for that matter, hydrology, the faster a river flows, the more silt it can carry. This effect is magnified by the infrequent heavy rains, When those showers do hit, the quantity and velocity of the water increases dramatically, up to ten times its normal volume. When the river exits the canyon, near the Jordan River, it slows, and therefore deposits its silt. This causes it to be wide, but shallow and slow, and easy to cross, just like Jacob did. Modernly, well, actually dating back thousands of years, In this area, farmers frequently use the river's water to irrigate their crops, and to water their herds of sheep and goats. Though the river today, especially far downstream, tends to be very polluted, more so by raw sewage, except when the rare rainstorm dilutes the pollutants. As for the history outside of the text, it goes back further than writing itself, so, literally, prehistory. This isn't surprising, as the river brought with it not only thirst-quenching water, but also agriculture and wildlife. The area is known for amber deposits, many of which have embedded insects. Think Jurassic Park. Later in the history are artifacts dating to as early as 7200 BC and spanning the next 2,000 years or so. Researchers think that the region was one of the most populated areas in in that prehistory period, with as many as 3,000 residents. If true, this would make it nearly five times larger than the nearby Jericho. There is a gap in the artifacts starting around 5000 BC, though this likely indicates nothing other than those have yet to be discovered. The artifacts restart with the Bronze Age period. In this era, the city of Jurish came into existence, To be fair, it isn't exactly on the Jabbok, but one of its primary tributaries, the Wadi Jurish. After the settlement of the Israelites, the history of the river, well, really the people who lived around it, would follow that of the region in general. And that's it for the Jabbok and the people, places, and things in Deuteronomy 2. Chapter 3 begins with a place known as Edri, but I covered that place just a couple of episodes ago. So, next up is the Argob, which I've mentioned in passing before. In Deuteronomy 3, it's a region that contained at least 60 cities ruled by King Og. Earlier mentions of Og in the Pentateuch did not include anything about the region, at least not by this name. Adding to the confusion is that in a modern sense, it's usually called the Lodjot. Now for one of the most surprising things about this region. First and especially when compared to the other places I've recently covered. It's large. Some 350 square miles, 900 square kilometers. And for the most part, it's a barren lava field. That's right, the result of volcanoes. The volcanoes are small, though, rising only up to 100 feet, 30 meters, above the surrounding area. This, along with owing to it being a desert, so little rain means it's sparsely populated, save a few geographic depressions that host partially arable land. It's located in what's today the southern part of Syria, about 30 miles, 50 kilometers southeast of Damascus. The region merited a few mentions in the Old and New Testaments. In addition to those about King Og, it was also under King Solomon's control. Luke made a passing reference to it in Chapter 3 of his Gospel though he used the Greek name Troconitis. And that's it in the text. Irish Presbyterian minister and missionary, Josiah Leslie Porter, visited the region in the mid-19th century. He wrote of his experience. Here, 60-walled cities are still traceable in a space of 308 square miles. The architecture is ponderous and massive. Solid walls, 4 feet thick, and stones on one another without cement. The roof's enormous slabs of basaltic rock, like iron, the doors and gates are of stone 18 inches thick, secured by ponderous bars. The land bears still the appearance of having been called the Land of the Giants under the giant Og. I have more than once entered a deserted city in the evening, taking possession of a comfortable house, and spent the night in peace. Many of the houses in the ancient cities of Bashan are perfect, as if only finished yesterday. The walls are sound, the roofs unbroken, and even the window shutters in their places. These ancient cities of Bashan probably contain the very oldest specimens of domestic architecture in the world. In the outside record, not much is known about the region prior to the Greeks except that it was mostly inhabited by nomadic Arabs who settled in the lower-lying areas as seen in the Pentateuch. The region came under the control of the Seleucids, but was used mostly as a buffer zone between them and the neighboring Nabataeans. The Romans would develop it somewhat, building roads to connect it with other parts of Syria, expanding the trade-based economy. At this time, it was under the control of Herod the Great. Under Byzantine rule, the region experienced an expansion of Christianity, but only to a few of the more prominent villages concentrated to the southeast side of the region, at least until the 6th century AD. At that time, the religion accelerated its expansion in the region. Then came the Islamic takeover. At some point, the region began appearing on Arab maps, which marked the first use of the name L'Jat, Though, do note that the first era maps of the region showed no cities, and researchers assume this indicates it had been largely abandoned. Early 13th century maps indicate a larger population, so it was either finally mapped out or the people had returned. If they did return, the thought is that they were primarily refugees from other parts of Syria fleeing Mongol invaders. After the Islamists were the Ottomans, with the region continuing to be populated in the scattered agricultural villages, though by the 17th century, it would be abandoned again. Such is the usual plight of an inhospitable region. In the next century, the 18th, Druze migrants would arrive, traveling from Lebanon. This migratory pattern would continue for about a 100 years, through the late 18th century, and throughout the 19th. From the Ottoman era through today, the history of the area has followed that of the region as a whole, with the current population being mostly Bedouin herders and the Druze. And that's it for Argob, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.